1: So
2: imagine for one terrifying second that you are Donald Trump. And so you were Donald Trump yesterday. So, you know, you're starting out the day with what you regard as one of the really great and perhaps defining moments of your presidency when you are announcing the successful use of deadly force against the leader of ISIS. And since you're Donald Trump, you do all the things that you're very familiar with doing. You use very visceral In kind of schoolyard language, you lay it on thick, you talk about other things like the possibility of seizing oil assets in the Middle East. You mention that you've written 12 books, you're pretty sure, and that one of them is germane to this in some way. You, of course, make invidious comparisons between yourself and President Obama. Um, And I'm just scratching the surface here. And so having done all that, having had you know, really, kind of an apex day. That night, you go to the World Series, <laughs> and you're loudly booed, and people start chanting, "Lock him up." So that's like what they do on one of your really good days. You got to be wondering what it's going to be like when you're having a very bad day. Uh, we are going to talk uh, today about the fact that uh, for most of us, uh, for many of us, in the morning Sunday, listening to the president's remarks. Uh, was, well, I found it very unsettling. And I had never heard a, heard a president talk like that because a president has never spoken like that under these circumstances. So we're going to look at it a couple of different ways. In the second segment, you're going to hear um, a little bit more about uh, the state of ISIS now, the future of ISIS in that region, what really has and has not been done to and against ISIS. Uh, In the final segment, we're going to try to make some room for your phone calls. But we're going to begin with those remarks themselves, the way the president faced the nation on Sunday morning. To do that, we have Alex Ward, staff writer covering international security and defense issues and co-host of Vox's Worldly podcast. That's the podcast called Worldly. Uh, And uh, so first of all, Alex, welcome to our conversation. Thanks for having me. And and I think you kind of agree that this really could have been, you know, a peak day for, for President Trump in terms of the way he sees his presidency and maybe in terms of the way a lot of people see what they hope from his presidency, uh, a, a serious foe of not just the United States, but just all kinds of different factions in the Middle East has met his demise. Uh, he has the chance to proclaim the news. And, and yet, somehow or other, he didn't seem to really find the words. I mean, we think back to President Obama. I think he spoke for three minutes and 37 seconds, signed off. It was solemn. This was very different. Maybe you'd care to elaborate.
1: Well, I mean, look, uh, the way the way Trump talked about this from the get-go was quite good. I mean, it was a good day for the U.S., a good day for him, uh, a, a great day for many people in the Middle East who'd suffered under ISIS. And the opening statement was fine. I mean, yes, he was using language saying that Baghdadi was cowering and whimpering, but okay, he's allowed one of those. And then what shocked me and I'm sure a ton of other people was that he answered questions uh, from the press, that he held a press conference afterwards, divulging tons of information about the raid, much more than his administration certainly would have wanted. Then he goes to, you know, openly mock Baghdad even further, which for some people I can see being okay. praise his own travel ban effectively insinuated that Baghdadi was more important than bin Laden, that have, had people listened to him and read his books, that maybe September 11th wouldn't have happened. At least that was the implication of his comments. So it it just was an odd way to go about, you know, Holding that office at the moment, you know, it is the death of a of a horrible human, and so that can be celebrated. But it is still supposed to be a somewhat dignified, high road, and solemn occasion. And Trump turned it into a, a victory lap of sorts.
2: Right. So let's uh, talk about one of the first things you mentioned. So he he did as he started to take questions. Well, we should back up and say that the U.S. military and the U.S. intelligence apparatus likes to pretty carefully pick and choose what gets said, what doesn't get said. Some of it might compromise intelligence assets, like how did we know this particular thing? Some of it maybe is sort of locker room material. You don't want them putting it up on their bulletin board saying, well, look what they just said that they did to us. Uh, There's a lot of reasons why the public statements don't include Everything in a situation like this, and so what? What did Trump say that struck you as at least something that probably should have been vetted a little bit more carefully beforehand?
1: Well, I mean, just off the top of my head, he talked about how many aircraft there were. There were eight helicopters. Uh, surely there was more uh, out there, but we at least knew there were eight helicopters. You know where the aircraft were flying from. The fact that he said that it was about an hour and ten minute flight. So there's only a a few locations where that could be from, which is why one of the main uh, reporting right now is that it came out of Erbil, Iraq, that uh, how they breached the building, that they exploded, you know, the commandos there didn't go through the front door. They blew up uh, part of the wall in order to get in and avoid booby traps, that there was a robot that we could send in into the tunnel to go after Baghdadi, but we didn't use it because the dog worked uh, just fine and we were tracking him fairly well and that we actually knew about the tunnels underneath the compound, and we sort of had a mapping about them. I mean, these are operational details that could give an adversary an advantage into how we do these things and gives just a lot of information about a very, very sensitive military operation.
2: Right. I mean, this isn't the first time he's been reckless about this, uh, particularly in his uh, conversation with R- Russian leadership. It did appear that he compromised possibly an intelligence, uh, an Israeli intelligence a- asset. We don't know, really. I mean, with he- here, you're just looking at a lot of this stuff, and it's really difficult to tell how much of it really could have, should have been kept behind the curtains. But as you say, he's Talking a lot, talking without a script, this is certainly not what generals and intelligence officers want him to do. Um, another thing that, that came up was Russia was uh, aware uh, of this, was briefed uh, uh, beforehand. Um, Congress was not, or at least Democrats in Congress, Democratic leadership in the House was not. Just uh, Just hear a little bit from his remarks here.
3: You notified the congressional <clears throat> leaders
4: about this policy uh, we've, we've sure notified
3: some model. others are being notified now as I speak uh, we were going to notify them last night but we decided not to do that because Washington leaks like I've never seen before there's nothing there's no country in the world that leaks like we do and Washington is a leaking machine and I told my people we will not notify them until the our great people are out not just in but out i don't want to have them greeted with uh, firepower like you wouldn't believe
2: i mean alex that actually seems like a defensible statement although not if you're going to tell russia
1: well so i want to be very clear about this i think the way that nancy pelosi who put out the statement saying well the president told russia before congress I think it's a bit misleading. I mean, the, the, what the president noted and others have as well is that the U.S. military had to let Russia know that, you know, American helicopters were going to fly over its airspace in Syria uh, in in order to make sure that there was no no issue. And so, yes, the U.S. told Russia, but it's not like the president called up Putin or or someone else in the Kremlin and said, "Hey, here's what we're doing." This was an operational issue. That said, I've talked to tons of people uh, who were involved in the Bin Laden raid and. Who have done other similar operations like this, and they unanimously say that you have to tell Congress, even people that you don't really, you know, know <laughs> or don't have good relationships with. I mean, even President Obama went so far as to call George W. Bush to say, you know, we got Bin Laden. And so the implication here is that Trump couldn't trust Pelosi, who used to serve on the Intelligence Committee, and other Democrats, that somehow they were going to call up reporters and say, here's what's going to happen. Uh, that. The ability, you know, the chance of that happening was zero. But this goes to show just the bad blood between Trump and a bunch of Democrats.
2: And and it does seem that in these situations... I mean, Reagan famously said politics stops at the water's edge. That seems to be an admonition that is not followed at all anymore under all kinds of different circumstances. But when you're going to use lethal force against, uh, you know, a prominent member uh, of a terrorist group that opposes you, it does seem like a not that one, even if your politics are pretty toxic, maybe it's a time when you park all that stuff and say we have a common enemy right here.
1: Absolutely. And on top of that, I mean, the, the American military is doing this on behalf of the American people, right? And so the the people's representatives in Congress have a right to know and to be able to get out ahead and, and just be aware of what's going on. Again, Trump's statement is somewhat defensible in the sense that you do not want information about this operation to leak because that could, of course, compromise the entire mission. But again the implication is that democrats cannot be trusted with such sensitive information that they would somehow try to blow up such a such an important mission and so uh- There's clearly a disconnect here, and it just goes against the way the U.S. usually does this kind of thing.
2: You know, Alex, um, one thing that I had noticed is not—it's sort of the dog that didn't bark in in his remarks. Um, He talks about ISIS being essentially dead and gone. Uh, We're going to explore in the second segment of the show today uh, how true that is or isn't. But, you know, and he thanks a number of countries— but to whatever extent ISIS is cle- completely or nearly completely degraded and robbed of its territorial advantages in that region, it's really due to tremendous human sacrifice on the part of the Kurds, 11,000 dead uh, from from among their numbers in that fight. Um, you know, and he kind of talked about the Kurds a couple of times during the Q&A, almost as if they were sort of a nuisance. He At one point he said, well, they were a lot easier to deal with after three days of fighting with Erdogan. <laughs> I thought, well... How nice for you, but I mean, really, they kind of had laid it all on the line for quite a while, and, and if ISIS is really in such bad shape, uh, they deserve the lion's share of the credit.
1: I, I thought he was oddly dismissive of them. That is possible. I mean, I think Trump was wanted to, you know give thanks to those that really didn't shoot down American helicopters running by right Russia Turkey uh, not that turkey would but you know Syria I mean, we were we were flying over their airspace and so it was odd for him to highlight them first I don't think it was necessarily any disrespect towards the Kurds I mean he uh, we know already that the the Kurds were instrumental in helping identify Baghdadi's location and, and this also other Isis leader that we uh, took out I believe this morning and so it again it was odd and and for Trump not to mention them first or to maybe give them a bit more credit. But that's kind of the way Trump talks. I think it's one of those things where it gets lost in his own translation.
2: All right. So when he's taking questions from the press, um, one of the places he veers off into, not for the first time by any means, uh, are the oil fields in that area. Let's hear a little bit of that.
3: We don't want to keep soldiers between Syria and Turkey for the next 200 years. They've been fighting for hundreds of years. We're out. But we are leaving soldiers to secure the oil. Now, we may have to fight for the oil. That's okay. Maybe somebody else wants the oil, in which case they have a hell of a fight. But there's massive amounts of oil, and we're securing it for a couple of reasons. Number one, it stops ISIS, because ISIS got tremendous wealth from that oil. We have taken it. It's secured. Number two, and again, somebody else may claim it, But either we'll negotiate a deal with whoever's claiming it, if we think it's fair, or we will militarily stop them very quickly. We have tremendous power in that part of the world.
1: Alex, is that oil our oil in some sense? it's not this is perhaps one of the more problematic parts of trump's comments is that i mean look one of the the main narratives against the u.s the main conspiracy theories is that our entire foreign policy towards the middle east is about oil and here's trump talking about yes we have troops that will only defend oil everyone else doesn't matter and on top of that we will fight to protect it and maybe we'll sell it if not we'll kind of keep it and as far as i know and i've talked to u.s officials about this. This is not oil meant for the United States. This is meant solely to keep it out of the hands of ISIS, and maybe we'll sell it to another country, and who knows. So for Trump to effectively imply that this will end up in American hands, that we have changed our entire mission from fighting ISIS to w- extracting oil from Syria, is n- only going to fuel the conspiracy theories and maybe help recruiting efforts in some way.
2: Right, it just it seems like this would, you know, if he were to carry those words to some kind of actionable conclusion, there'd be like a U.N. Security Council (laughs) resolution against us or you could just announce that you, just because you're in the vicinity of oil... That it's your oil. I don't think it's. Well, anyway. So and the other thing that you wrote about and that was really kind of fascinating uh, was the degree to which, although it's never a surprise if he veers into invidious comparisons between himself and his predecessor. That's a big thing. Um, But he wants us to know that in many ways, this is a larger accomplishment than taking out bin Laden. Uh, Here's how some of that goes.
3: To this day, I get people coming up to me. They said, you know what? One of the most amazing things I've ever seen about you is that you predicted that Osama bin Laden had to be killed before he knocked down the World Trade Center. It's true. Now, most of the press doesn't want to write that, but, you know, but it is true. If you go back, look at my book. I think it was The America We Deserve. uh, I I made a prediction and I, I, let's put it this way. If they would have listened to me, uh, a lot of things would have been different.
2: This one doesn't really fact check very well. I went back and read that part of the America we deserve, but uh, Alex, how did it land with you?
1: It was uh, very clearly false. I mean, first, uh, your first tell was Trump saying that people come up to him and say, you know, oh God, you're great. That's usually one of the ways you know that he's exaggerating or, or, or lying. But look, I mean, in the book, Trump doesn't ever say that the U.S. should kill bin Laden. Bin Laden does come up in the book, but. Trump effectively lumps it in with a bunch of other national security threats facing the. US at the time. And, and what's also odd is that he goes on to, in these comments, he also mentions that like, oh, no one really knew who Osama was, which is insane because in the 90s he had led an oper- you know the bombings of two US embassies, one in Nairobi and another one in Tanzania, and, you know, killing hundreds of people. And there was the CIA was even had a dedicated division to looking after bin Laden in the 90s. So, you know, Trump is wrong here. We knew who bin Laden was. He never called for bin Laden's death. And again, the implication of his comments is, oh, if the US had somehow listened to me, uh, then we would have taken up bin Laden and maybe 9-11 wouldn't have happened. And that is just an incredibly irresponsible thing to say.
2: Yeah, I mean, that notion that he was some kind of voice, lone voice, crying in the wilderness. We also had Op- Operation Infinite Reach, uh, which was a Clinton uh, administration operation. A lot of us thought at the time maybe it was kind of a wag the dog as he was in the middle of his Monica Lewinsky mess, but he, they hit targets in Sudan and Afghanistan with the stated goal, or the sort of post-stated goal, uh, of taking out some guy named Osama bin Laden, who you know, wasn't a household name the way he became, but, you know, as you say, enough of a threat already to warrant some pretty significant uh, counterintelligence and, and and even military strikes. Um, and and certainly, yeah, there's nothing anywhere in that book that predicts uh, anything or that, um, that you know, uh, warns people about the coming attack or anything. It's more a critique of the kind of helter-skelter Clinton kind of counterterrorism strategy that, that Trump doesn't approve of. So, you know, uh, you said at the beginning that in terms of the talk about the whimpering and crying and cowering and dying like a dog and being frightened of puppies and all this kind of stuff, that he's entitled to a little bit of rhetoric of this kind on an occasion like this. Although, It also raises the question how we would even know such a thing. He's watching, uh, you know, he's watching essentially a visual feed that has no audio track on it. His secretary of defense subsequently says he has no personal knowledge of whimpering and crying or whatever he might have done before detonating the suicide vest. Um, I, I assume a Delta Force commando would have had to tell the president that, although he doesn't really explain how he would know such a thing.
1: Well, Esper even says, I mean, you're right. Esper did did say that he does not have that information himself, but he also goes on to mention that the president may have had an opportunity to talk with those who were in the operation, and that's a possibility. Uh, And and if that's true, and this was the information that was conveyed to to the president, then, you know, I think it's within his right to mention it maybe once and and as a way to kind of offer some color of the operation. Uh, That said, if, you know, consistently mentioning it, is not necessarily the most uh, dignified way to, to go about it. Again, no one really sheds a tear for Baghdadi here uh, in these parts, but it's not necessarily you know the way the, the, the holder of the Oval Office should really go about talking about um, the U.S. using its power to kill someone, even as, as someone as a terrorist leader like, like Baghdadi. And at the end of the day here, what you have is the president using this as an opportunity to make himself look good, right? What this entire press conference turned out to be was a presidential preening, you know, saying that I'm so smart, I somehow pulled off a bigger operation than, than Obama did with the Bin Laden raid. I mean, this was really all about him and what this really should have been about was the United States was good enough to go after a notorious, horrible terrorist leader, take him out, gather intelligence and leave relatively unscathed, and to do so in a dignified manner. And the president failed to do that.
2: Right. And there is sort of a rule in sports, too. You don't say anything to the press that the other team's going to put up on the bulletin board in their locker room as a way of kind of firing themselves up. This kind of language, as opposed to the fairly somber language that Obama used at the end of the uh, raid on bin Laden, you know, I mean, it really does seem like, particularly because ISIS, having lost all of its safe havens, as we're going to talk about in the next segment, having lost the... Operational centers from which it could uh, could, could do its stuff is going to be decentralized. Is going to be probably doing a lot of propagandizing online, which it already does. So I don't know. You wind up creating some video clips that that they can use for their purposes,
1: right? I mean, there are. I mean, the biggest issue what Trump did was give up so many operational details that like, other future you know targets might uh, learn from and then possibly defend against. But there are, will now be this notion of like, oh, you know, Trump insulted our leader and could potentially fire some people up to to fight. That said, I have talked to some counterterrorism officials who are not so concerned about you know retaliatory attacks at the moment. I mean, does the risk higher? Yes, but it's not as high. They would t- they tell me uh, as it was during the after the Bin Laden raid because Al Qaeda was more operational. They had a, a stronger core. They probably had more international big attacks off the shelf. ISIS is a lot more decentralized. They're mostly franchises at this point. And so it's probably hard for them to, to come up with a really big plan. But that said, again, like this was kind of an own goal. You, ju- The president just didn't need to continually go after Baghdadi and insult him and continually uh, sort of, you know, give off so much. It was just he would have been 100% fine doing exactly what he did before he asked any questions.
2: Right. So uh, thanks very much to Alex Ward, staff writer covering international security and defense issues and host co-host of Vox's Worldly Podcast. Thanks for being with us today. Happy to be here. All right. We're going to take a little break. We'll come back. We're going to focus a little bit on ISIS's... Uh, present and immediate future, uh, what has changed and what hasn't changed. Uh, and then uh, for the final segment, third and final segment, we will take your calls. I'll give the number now, but don't call now because we've got a whole other segment coming. But it's 888-720-WNPR. Just jot that down and we'll get to your calls uh, towards the end of the show today.
3: When the president talks to God, does he ever think that maybe he's not? That that voice is just inside his head when he kneels next to the presidential bed. Does he ever smell his own bull-ish when the president talks to God? I doubt it.
2: It seemed appropriate to acquire a little bit more information about what's happening in the region now, what ISIS's status is and what it's likely to be going forward. To do that, we have with us Jennifer Caffarella, Research Director at the Institute for the Study of War. Welcome to our show.
0: Thanks for having me.
2: So we, we know that the geographical or territorial dominance that the ISIS had at one point is, is long gone. But earlier this year, in a report to the Security Council, the Secretary General of the U.N. said estimated fourteen to 18,000 remaining ISIS or ISIS-related militants. That's not nothing. Uh, does that, first of all, does that seem like a realistic appraisal at this point?
0: I do think that's a realistic appraisal based on the activity that we're seeing from that remnant ISIS fighting force across both Iraq and Syria where we've had campaigns of assassinations of local village leaders and other forms of retribution against the population that supported counter-ISIS operations, as well as ISIS attacks on the military forces that actually had defeated the physical caliphate, demonstrating that, very unfortunately, this is an organization, actually, that is on the upswing and has survived its outright loss of control.
2: Yeah, so upswing is a complicated term. I mean, obviously they don't have their safe havens anymore. What they would presumably have to do is is learn to live off the land in a different way. And maybe that's a good way to circle back to the role of Baghdad of Al Baghdadi himself. Um, It has been suggested that his day to day leadership of ISIS uh, of late hadn't been the same thing. That in many ways uh, it's a more decentralized organization with other people in other places making hands-on decisions?
0: Sure. So I would say from available evidence, we don't actually entirely know how involved Baghdadi was in the day-to-day. There is some speculation that he was a bit removed. What I'll offer is that he is the leader of a global terrorist organization. So he certainly can't and shouldn't, from an organizational perspective, be involved in the micro-details in all of the countries where ISIS forces are operating But what we do know is he very deliberately stitched back together what we call a command and control structure in both Iraq and Syria, a system of subordinates that he trusted to conduct military operations based on his guidance.
2: So, you know, in the early days, um, ISIS seemed to be more concerned with the so-called near enemy. In other words, their concerns were apostate regimes within the Arab world, the Assad regime, uh, the Abadi regime in Iraq, um, smaller ethnic minorities, uh, uh, including the Yazidis, uh, even the Lebanese Hezbollah. Um, But, you know, in the spring... Um, ISIS took responsibility, claimed responsibility for the so-called Easter bombings in Sri Lanka. And, and I guess one of the questions that a lot of us would have is since they don't have a caliphate anymore, they don't have a geographical or territorial caliphate, does that mean that they spread out a little bit more, operate in other countries, radicalize online, that kind of thing?
0: Sure. So it actually has been a hallmark of ISIS's campaign since before it declared the physical caliphate to fight two wars simultaneously. The local war against the apostate regimes, as you excellently uh, described, but then a simultaneous global war against the wider enemies of the ISIS ideology in terms of ISIS's perspective. And so even before al-Baghdadi declared the caliphate in Mosul, Iraq, He had already dispatched cells of foreign fighters into Europe to conduct attacks. So fighting these two wars has always been part of the strategic framework, which is why even while fighting a very aggressive defensive campaign in Iraq and Syria against the counter-ISIS coalition, ISIS prioritized continuing to expand globally. And the Easter bombings that we saw this year were one element of that continued global expansion. ISIS also created four additional what they call provinces to add to their caliphate just this year. ISIS has, in fact, lost the physical control of terrain in Iraq and Syria, but they claim that the caliphate actually does live on in this wider community of supporters abroad.
2: Talking to Jennifer Caffarella, a research director at the Institute for the Study of War. So I guess the, ne- the next question has to do with ISIS containment. We know who has l- Paid the biggest human sacrifice in uh, destroying or degrading the physical geographical caliphate, and that's the Kurds. Um, The Kurds seem to be in a very different position. I noted yesterday in the president's remarks, they weren't very prominently mentioned, even in who was helpful in in accomplishing this latest thing. Um, And so I guess the question becomes, if someone is going to try to contain ISIS, if someone is going to try to combat ISIS, who is that going to be?
0: Well, it is still my hope that the United States will do the right thing here um, and remain committed not only to our partners and the communities that have bled so much under the tyranny of ISIS, but that the U.S. will recognize that there is no substitute for American military power in terms of keeping ISIS from reclaiming terrain or ideally eliminating even further its ability to continue to terrorize these populations. So to that end, I am heartened to see the fact that the president has recognize that some continued pressure on ISIS is necessary and I hope that we as a nation are able to broaden from that to recognize that it only took ISIS three years to bounce back the last time we retreated from this region which was President Obama's decision in 2011 to withdraw from Iraq. It will take ISIS far less time this time around if we take our eye off this ball. and I don't think that we can afford to do that.
2: It it seems in some ways that the area it would probably be wrong to say that they're back to square one, back to the conditions that you described when, when President Obama decided to withdraw. But you even look at some of these places where uh, where the Kurds, and assisted by the U.S., have worked to extirpate uh, ISIS. My understanding is that Raqqa is you know a shell of, of its former self. These are, in many cases, cities which have paid a tremendous price for being safe havens uh, for ISIS. You feel like the region is not in good shape right now. And if that's what it takes to sow the seeds for that kind of insurgency, I mean, in a way, we've kind of gone back maybe to to those kinds of conditions.
0: Yeah, I would say that the moment we're in right now is actually worse for us and better for ISIS than the moment in 2011. Because when we retreated in 2011, we had left behind a government that had reconciled the population to itself, that had rebuilt important parts of the country, that had provided basic needs and services for the population, that had then been ravaged by the predecessor to ISIS, al-Qaeda in Iraq. And none of those things have happened this time around. There's been no healing. There's been no reconciliation. There's been no reconstruction. Many of these families can't even return to their homes because they're still booby-tracked booby-trapped by explosive devices that ISIS left behind precisely to prevent these populations from recovering. And so when we talk about the dangers of an ISIS resurgence, it's really important to recognize that an insurgency that fights within a population benefits immensely from the conditions of vulnerability that the populations in both Iraq and Syria are currently experiencing, with frankly no end in sight.
2: Um. What does anybody make of the location Baghdadi was killed in, was found in? He seemed to be in a place where he shouldn't be in Syria's Idlib province. Does anybody have any idea what he was doing there as opposed to a position of greater strength?
0: Yeah, so one of the surprises of this American raid on the ISIS leader was the location in Idlib province. Now, we knew that ISIS had been operating in the province. And in fact, we at the Institute for the Study of War have been putting that on our maps of ISIS for a year now, that there has been an infiltration of ISIS into that province. But the reason it was surprising that Baghdadi was there in person was because the infiltration into that province was an offensive campaign against Al-Qaeda. So ISIS had triggered multiple rounds of al-Qaeda retribution against ISIS and attempts to purge ISIS from that province, which made it a pretty risky place for the senior ISIS commander, right, to to be located. So the questions now include, was he in collaboration with some al-Qaeda elements that agree with him that al-Qaeda should be conducting immediate attacks on the West, not deprioritizing those efforts? And If the reports are true that Baghdadi was in the home of one of these senior al-Qaeda commanders at the time of the U.S. raid, that raises very dangerous possibilities, actually, that he was implementing or beginning to consider a new round of negotiations with at least some al-Qaeda elements for a unification of effort against the West.
2: Uh, we're talking to Jennifer Caffarella, a research director at the Institute for the Study of War. So, there, you know, in all of the clamor uh, Sunday morning, there was a, a death later that maybe got a, a little less attention, and that was the death of Abu Hassan al-Muhajir. Uh, can you tell us who that person was and, and what that significance would be?
0: Yeah, so this was a follow-on American strike on the spokesperson uh, for ISIS. This is a very senior member of the Islamic State Organization, a close confidant, of course, of the now-deceased ISIS leader, Baghdadi. And it appears that the U.S. was able to conduct a strike on al-Muhajir, the spokesman, as a result of intelligence related to the initial raid against Baghdadi. So this is another significant victory for the anti-ISIS coalition. Uh, and the hope now is that the U.S. will continue to be able to exploit the intelligence gained here to eliminate additional ISIS leaders.
2: Um, How much is this affected by the kind of uncertainty and, and, I don't know, reorientation of diplomacy right there? I mean, this comes so fast on the heels uh, of President Trump's apparent new permissiveness towards Erdogan. Um, As a matter of fact, in Trump's remarks yesterday, he at one point said, I thought rather callously that it was, easier to work with the Kurds or easier to move them out of the way uh, after three days of fighting. I mean, uh, I don't know how that would have landed with people who were there, Kurdish fighters who were there. But uh, it seems as though the whole region is kind of a little bit different now. Uh, Trump is letting Erdogan do certain things that he wasn't allowed to do in the past. Uh, that activates the interests probably uh, a little bit differently of, say, Russia. Um, What do we know or what can we speculate about the future fight against ISIS? You know, I was asking you before, who's going to do it? You said ideally the United States still stays involved, but the United States seems to have picked slightly different sides than they had in the past.
0: Yeah, the uncertainty or counterproductive aspects of the U.S. approach in Syria right now is a huge liability in the fight against ISIS. In the immediate term, I think it's important to recognize that the U.S. had to intervene against ISIS in 2014 because none of the regional actors were either able or able or willing to take down this organization. And that includes Turkey. So Turkey is not suddenly in 2019 now going to become the counter ISIS partner that we needed in 2014. And even ceding to Erdogan, the Turkish president, Kurdish Syria would not suddenly make him a viable counter-ISIS partner. It's simply not an option. So I understand the desire to disengage from this region. I understand the desire not to become involved in the wider complexities of the Syrian civil war and wider regional issues to include the Iranians and the Israelis. But the unfortunate reality is we have to choose. Are we willing to live with a return of this barbaric organization and its genocidal behavior in the Middle East and the attacks abroad? If we're not willing to live with that, then we have to stay engaged in Syria because a U.S. withdrawal makes it a guarantee that ISIS will bounce back. Our withdrawal will cede eastern Syria to a new round of warfare that creates the ideal conditions for ISIS to research.
2: All right. That's uh, an ominous but perhaps appropriate note to end on. Jennifer Caffarella, Research Director at the Institute for the Study of War. Thank you so much for being with us today.
0: Thank you.
2: Okay. You're all set. Thanks very much for doing this.
0: Yeah, my pleasure.
2: Great, were great question. Okay, thank you. Okay, okay bye-bye now. Bye. We're going to take a break right now. I'm not 100% sure what's going to happen, but I think what we're going to do is uh, open the phones to you folks. Uh, obviously, this was a turbulent weekend. You have a lot of impressions of your own that you may want to share. So our number is 888-720-WNPR. That's 888 888- 7209677 I'll say it one more time uh, alpha instead of numerically 888720wnpr use the break to get on the line I can take you first uh, when we come back uh, we'll take this break and we shall return So we're back. Um, first of all, today's show is produced by senior producer Betsy Kaplan. Kyon Wolf is on the board, making everything sound good. Kyan Wolf is dressed today like the spokesperson for a fairly affluent coven because we we're some of us are having our pictures, our portraits, professionally taken today by a portrait photographer, and we had to bring in outfits. I'm saying all this with great anxiety because I don't really own any outfits. I mean, I basically just like a hobo, you know. Three hundred and sixty-one days out of three hundred and sixty-five, but but Kyan Wolf looks very nice today in a slightly, you know, corporate Wiccan. That's how I would I would say it. Wick- <laughs> <laughs> I'm making this so much worse. Wiccan business casual. That's what I'm saying. Uh, all right. So our number, meanwhile, back to seriousness, 888-720-WNPR, 888-720-9677. Uh, we will start, because I think she called first, uh, with Mary from Northford. Uh, hi, Mary. You're on the air.
0: Hey there. Um, I just have a question about the timeline. So so um, Trump was saying how he didn't tell the Democrats because he was afraid that they would leak it and then you know the the mission wouldn't go off as planned and people would get hurt so if it happened on Saturday night at five and was done by nine or something why didn't he tell him Saturday night why did Schiff and uh, they said they have to see it when he's telling everybody else on the TV
2: well that's that's a fair question and, and sort of to go back to the first uh, interview we did of the day with Alex Ward I mean he, his He's familiar with these things. He said ordinarily, you just do brief them anyway. You don't. Uh, treat Nancy Pelosi, who's got a pretty strong background on the, uh, on the Intelligence Committee, as somebody who's going to leak it to, you know, God knows who. But anyway, um, yeah, it, you raise a good point, though. It was all over by 9 o'clock. So in time for the tweet that said something big has just happened, one would assume that at that point, anyway, people could be told as opposed to watching it on TV. So exactly fair, fair question. Uh, I don't have an answer. Which is perhaps (laughs) for the yeah could be for the proof that it's a fair question actually. All right, so uh, hold on for just a second and let me tell you the number again. The number is eight 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 seven two zero WNPR. That's eight 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 seven two zero nine six seven seven. Let's go to Jennifer in Newtown. Hi, Jennifer.
0: Hi. How are you? Just fine. Thank you for taking for my call. Sure. I just have a question. Do you think that ultimately this whole situation with Syria and our lack of support now for the Kurds has been a divisive plan by Trump and Putin just to make Russia more powerful? Because it, it just seems kind of asinine to me, the whole thing.
2: Well, I don't know. I feel like I should... Follow a kind of Occam's razor about this, and not assume things that that are not evident or visual or obvious. I, I think one thing that you could say is that this is, it, it in some ways deepens Trump's relationship with Turkey, um, and I mean some people have even found it kind of curious that so shortly after. Uh, we uh, agreed to let Turkey do something that we had traditionally not allowed it to do, we suddenly have this Baghdadi information. But I don't think that really holds up very well. It's pretty clear that the intelligence about Baghdadi began building up over the summer. Uh, But it's the one way that I would say that if you want to look down the line about what would make Vladimir Putin happy— one thing that clearly does make him happy, and I'm not suggesting that this is a reason for doing anything. I'm not suggesting this is a reason that we did this thing uh, or yeah. the reason it was handled in any particular way. But Vladimir Putin is happy when NATO functions more erratically and less successfully. So to whatever degree, I mean, the second biggest military power in NATO is Turkey. Um, Turkey is a very, very large military. Uh, So to whatever degree NATO is at odds right now uh, with Turkey, to whatever degree there's a disjuncture between Turkey and the other major NATO countries, except for us. Uh, that would make Putin happy. And, you know, to whatever degree he makes common cause with Erdogan, obviously. I, I don't know. I don't think actually that Donald Trump is capable of plotting in a very strategic way with Russia. But there's certainly things that happen, a surprising number of things that happen that would make Putin happy. So I don't know, do with that whatever you want to do, I guess. No, I appreciate it. Thank you so much for taking my call. Okay, thanks for your call, too. Uh, All right, so we've got other calls here, and the number is 888-720-WNPR. 888-720-WNPR. That's 888-720-9677. Yeah, we're just having you react a little bit to uh, what happened all day long yesterday, uh, starting in the morning, uh, with uh, the news about Baghdadi and the way that it was framed, the way that it was described, what's going to happen now. Um, There's also like a whole separate debate about whether it was wrong and un-American to boo the president uh, at the baseball game and to chant lock him up. It was suggested on Morning Joe, which is not something that I have identified as a source of great sagacity, uh, that that should not have happened. Anyway, here we go. Here's John from Shelton. Hi, John. You're on the air.
4: Uh, Good afternoon. Uh, Just following up on the previous caller and and your comments and her response to her, why would you not think— that Trump uh, kowtows to Putin in all these events. I mean, isn't there enough evidence of of the last three years?
2: There's certainly evidence of kowtowing and certainly that great uh, upsetting moment at at Helsinki where he uh, sided with Putin's word, spoken word over the reports of his own intelligence establishment, you know, stuff like that. I just, I try to be careful because there's so much... I mean, I have as many fears and concerns about President Trump as just about anybody. But you know, absent some real proof, uh, I try not to assume things that aren't in evidence. There are so many things that are in evidence. So many things that he just unflinchingly makes part of the public record. I feel like I don't have to go. Well, maybe this is the other thing is true too. I mean, maybe it is. I wouldn't yeah, be surprised. But-
4: but, it, but in reality, you're accepting the norm that he's trying to establish, which is, you know, breaking down all our institutions, you know, thanking, you know, Russia, China, Syria, you know, leaving out the Delta Force in the end with the with the capture or the, you know, this, this person being killed or killing himself. It's just, it just, you cannot ignore these, these signs. And then you have Pompeo not answering questions while he's in the middle of the country, just completely, you know, They cannot just ignore questions about our national security. Right. It's just just outrageous.
2: I agree with you, and I agree. agree, um, Thanks for your call, by the way. I agree that stuff should not be normalized. And I think one of the things you've been seeing over the last two weeks within the State Department are career state department officers people who spent their lives in foreign service who've served you know four or five six different presidents coming forward to say this is not the way we do things this things are being done in a manner that substantially departs from tradition and i would say yesterday's press conference in the ways that we covered at the beginning of the show today, ranging from the braggadocio and bravura, uh, the just constant refrain about the whimpering and crying. I've never seen a president talk like that about a vanquished adversary, uh, even a really horrible vanquished adversary uh, like Baghdadi or like bin Laden, uh, to talking about stuff that probably should have been vetted before being discussed in public for fear of blowing intelligence issues, the stuff about seizing oil. We can't just seize oil because we're in its vicinity and like it. Uh, I mean, there were so many ways in which the status quo was or just the prudent way of proceeding and the way of proceeding that accumulates dignity and respect for the United States. Uh, I mean, one of the reasons we have done things a certain way in the past uh, is because we want to set a certain tone about ourselves uh, we want to make it clear that we're we're not. I mean, you know, terrorists regularly produced videos, produce videos where they mock and taunt people that they've killed, mock and taunt the home countries and families and loved ones of people that they've killed. You know, that's a very kind of standard, or or calling people dogs. You know, I mean. That's kind of the way terrorists talk. We don't want to talk the way terrorists talk. So I, I'm with uh, the caller that this isn't really the way that we want to be, and we don't want to pretend that it's normal. But it's just, you know, like he did this because Putin wanted him to. I, I think, you know, absent proof of that, I, I don't want to go there. Um, all right, here's David and Woodbury. Hi, David. You're on the air.
4: Oh, hi, Colin. It, it, it's appalling that they leaving- Syria, uh, three thousand troops from, from Syria protecting the Kurds. Death, destruction, and suffering. Oh, for for what? Uh, yes, playing up to Erdogan. Yes, but within Donald Trump, it seems all roads lead to Moscow, and namely Vladimir Putin. It's, he, he, he's got to go.
2: Who Vladimir, Vladimir, of Vladimir office, Putin, because I, I don't think we can impeach Putin, but. Uh... I guess we could try. Uh, well, listen, thanks for your call, David. We can't, we actually have time to squeeze in one more call here. It's eight 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 seven two zero 720 wnpr That's eight 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 seven two zero 720 wnpr A couple of things that I would mention. First of all, we have a 10th anniversary party coming up uh, on November 13th. It's going to be at Black Eyed Sally's if you want to be with us. We need you to get tickets. Unfortunately, I don't have a really good way to give you the link right this minute, but watch uh, WNPR.org. We'll, pick, we'll put up the link to the Eventbrite uh, site where you would order a ticket. If you know my Facebook page, it's up there right now. Uh, it's easy to find. We'd love to have you there. It'll be kind of an early evening thing. I think it's 530 to 730, something like that. And uh you know, we'll all have a drink and we might sing a couple of songs. And, and it's just sort of amazing that we've been on the air for 10 years. We're as amazed as anybody else is. Uh, and then coming up this week, we have a few, a few interesting shows, maybe worth mentioning uh, on Wednesday. Wednesday's the prison show, right? Wednesday's the, yes. So we've been working on a show about one of the things that we know. Uh, and that we know with some excitement, is that we're in the midst of uh, a years-long prison reform movement, that on a bipartisan basis, we've agreed that too many people are incarcerated, too many people are incarcerated for too long. Uh, Prison sentences uh, should be shorter. uh, Fewer people should have prison sentences at all. Uh, We seem to have arrived at something approaching a national consensus about that. But what maybe we're less clear about... And I would add that increasingly we view our parole system as too well there's, first of all, just too many people under parole supervision right now. Um, Our bail system, same deal, doesn't really work the way it's supposed to. Um, But we haven't really looked at, do we really have the framework that's needed when people do get out of prison? If we want to get people out of prison earlier, incarcerate them for not as long, have shorter sentences What are are we doing with that vulnerable population? It steps out of prison and looks for a place to live. Uh, People look for jobs. Uh, People look for the kind of support they need to reenter a society that they've been out of for a while. Have we actually provided that? How easy or hard is it to get and keep a job if you're an ex con, ex offender? Is what you say these days. Uh, That kind of thing. Okay. Then on Thursday, Thursday's Halloween, so we typically do a Halloween show. One of the things we're going to be looking at on that show this uh, week is uh, on. We're going to look at what's called folk horror. Folk horror is um, stuff ranging from Shirley Jackson's The Lottery to The Wicker Man in the 1970s to this year, Midsummer uh, this. It's about what happens when you run into, in rural situations, pagan groups that have followed pre-Christian Druidic religions, but also are into human sacrifice. I mean, it's like maybe not the plot of every one of these things, but kind of like that. And on Friday, we're going to have The Nose with special Nose panelist John Dankosky. So you're not going to want to miss that show, right? Okay, don't miss any shows, actually. And thanks for listening to this one.